the cichlids, which were in the lake, which were the, the predominant fish in the lake, weren't of any commercial value. Nobody ate them or exported them or anything. And the British wanted to turn that their flesh into something that would be able to bring in money. So they introduced an Isle perch, which would eat the cichlids and itself be able to be sold around Africa and um, exported outside Africa. Welcome to episode five of Back to the Source. My name is Sam Stewart, and today we're discussing fish from Lake Victoria in East Africa. Unlike other episodes where we've taken a more contemporary look at the way our stuff is sourced, this episode explores the mismanagement of Lake Victoria's fish stock dating all the way back to the 1900s. We hear firsthand how the consequences of this mismanagement are playing out today for the environment and the people whose livelihoods rely on the lake. Today we're going to be speaking about fish from Lake Victoria and I'm joined by Mark Weston. Mark, thanks very much for joining. Thank you. Maybe let's start with a uh, introduction to yourself and, and your work. Yes, yeah, so I'm a, a writer and uh, researcher and consultant working on various development issues, um, mostly related to Africa these days. Um, I'm freelance, currently based in London, lived in um, Tanzania and Sudan quite a lot for the last few years, and wrote this book while while I was in, in Sudan. Um, my wife um, works for the British Council, and we got posted to a pro- teaching project um, in Tanzania, and she kind of got, she was late to the project, so she kind of drew the short straw and ended up in the most remote teacher training college in Tanzania, which was on Ukerewe Island, um, and I tagged along didn't really have anything better to do so uh, and wanted to get a taste of African rural life um, so we ended up ended up living there for for two years ended up writing this book yeah I mean you save a short straw but it sounds it sounds like a pretty amazing experience maybe you can go into that in a bit more detail you mentioned you lived on Okoroe Island for two years and that's where you you wrote this book the saviour fish what kind of led you to to think about writing the book I imagined I'd probably write articles, like travel articles about it, because it sounded like an interesting place. It's a pretty remote island in the middle of uh, Lake Victoria. Um, we were the only foreigners on the island when, when we went out there and didn't really speak any Swahili and stuff, so it seemed like it was going to be an adventure. So I thought I'd probably write um, articles about it, having written a few travel articles and broadcasts before, um, but ended up realising that actually the kind of environmental crisis that the people on the lake were going through probably merited a whole book because it was a kind of microcosm of what's happening to a lot of environments around the world where um, greed and plunder or desperation in in, in a lot of cases ends up in environmental damage which might have short-term benefits to the the people affected but in the long term it kind of screws them up Um, so yeah ended up writing what is it, a short book about about the lake about our experiences and also about the environmental crisis and how that affects local people in the book you cover religion fishing health education even some some uh, chapters on, on witchcraft um so it's a super diverse book and it's you really managed to capture all of the different aspects of life on the island and all of the different characters as well but yeah this episode we're as i said we're focusing on on the, the fish fishing aspect and, and what the impacts were on the wider community and the environment yeah. And maybe we can take it all the way back to the lake itself, and you can give us a bit of a, 
overview of the history of Lake Victoria, where it is, you know, how it rates in comparison to other Great Lakes. Yeah, so Lake Victoria is it's the second largest freshwater lake in the world. It's about the size of Ireland. Um, it's bordered by uh, Tanzania, Kenya and Uganda. Uh, Tanzania has the larger share of the lake. It's actually an unusually shallow lake. Um, its average depth is something like 40 metres, and I think the deepest point is only 80 metres, whereas nearby Lake Tanganyika, for example, which is the, I think the second biggest lake in Africa, can be 1,500 metres deep in places. So it's um, particularly vulnerable to climate climatic changes because it's so shallow. I mean, it's dried up several times over the millennia. The last time, I think, was 15,000 years ago. Um, and then it gradually refilled. Um, but it's known um, among scientists mainly for its massive, amazing biodiversity. Um, and this is mainly as a result of its uh, cichlids, which is a small fish, um, which it can evolve very rapidly. Uh, there were about 500 species of fish, of cichlid fish in uh, Lake Victoria um, in like the 1970s or 1980s. And in 15,000 years, I think there've been a new species evolving every couple of decades, um, whereas it takes a lot of um, most animals eons to evolve into new species. Cichlids were doing it um, very fast and it, scientists would um, kind of converge on the lake to see this kind of miraculous rapid evolution in action. Um, and it's, um, it's currently depended on the lake by about 25 million people in the three countries around it. Um, so they either farm near the lake or fish on the lake or work in the fishing industry in some, in some way. So fishing is the kind of lifeblood of the lake and has been since about the, well, since about the 1930s on and off. There's been a few booms and busts in that time, but fishing is basically the, what it, where it's at on Lake Victoria. I ended up meeting uh, quite a few fishermen um, while, while living on Okado and finding out from them, um, as well as from background reading I did, um, you know, what, what had gone on and what was, what's going on there, what's going on there still. Yeah, so you mentioned the, the cichlids and they're the, I guess, they're the kind of core foundational fish that, that lives um, in Lake Victoria. You know, the book also details the introduction of new types of fish and, and what the, the impacts of introducing those fish uh, is and, and was. Maybe you can give us some, a bit of a flavour of the other types of fish um, alongside the cichlids. Yeah, so the nat- the, alongside the cichlids, as native species, there are a few types of catfish, um, lungfish, um, and these tiny little fish called silver cyprinids. But um, in the 1950s, um, a new fish was introduced to the lake. So the British colonisers of uh, East Africa needed to uh, keep the colonial economy afloat and they wanted to make some money out of Lake Victoria. So in the uh, 20s and 30s, they'd introduced new technologies to the lake, new fishing technologies like flax eel nets that catch more fish and organising um, the fishermen into fleets for the first time before it had just been an artisanal um, pursuit and people had just done it for a few weeks every year and caught a few fish. And it was easy to catch fish because there were loads of them and you could catch them from the beaches. They didn't use any technologies. But to kind of industrialise the lake, the British brought these new technologies in, including sail-powered boats as well. And there was a fishing boom and then there was overfishing and there was a bust and a few of the native species. Quite a lot of the native species went extinct within a couple of two or three decades. Um, So then after the Second World War, they again 
they, the British need, needed even more money now to balance the colonial books because they'd spent so much on the war effort. Um, they decided to introduce um, Nile perch to the lake, which is a very large fish. It can grow to the size of a man and had been had been successful in other African lakes, but never um, introduced to Lake Victoria. So Lake Victoria is the um, source of the Nile River, the main source of the Nile River. And the Nile perch lived on the river further down in, uh, towards sort of Egypt um, and probably I think Sudan as well. Um, but they'd never been in, in the lake itself. And ecologists um, advised the British, and some of them thought it'd be okay, some of them thought it was dangerous to um, introduce a new alien predator into a fragile tropical ecosystem. Um, but uh, the British thought that the cichlids, which were in the lake, which were the, the predominant fish in the lake, weren't of any commercial value. Nobody ate them or exported them or anything. And the British wanted to turn that their flesh into something that would be able to bring in money. So they'd introduced the Nile perch, which would eat the cichlids and itself be able to be sold around Africa and um, exported outside Africa. So they introduced that in the 50s. Um, and then again, I think there were another couple of introductions in the 60s. And uh, gradually the Nile perch became an important species in the lake. And it ate a lot of cichlids and it competed with the cichlids for food. And that, along with environmental factors, uh, contributed to a drastic decline in the uh, amount of cichlids left in the lake. And something like 200 species went extinct of cichlids in the, um, between the 70s and the, about the year 2000. Um, and it's been described, I think, as one of the largest mass extinctions of vertebrates the largest mass extinction of vertebrates in recorded history. So the Nile perch kind of took over the lake and, and the, the fish biomass in the lake became dominated by Nile perch instead of cichlids. It brought in a lot of money to the lake economy for a while and people converged on the lake from all over Africa to fish it and join in the kind of gold rush. But nowadays the, the uh, Nile perch is in decline because the Nile perch was overfished and has also suffered from these environmental um, impacts. And you mentioned that one of the causes of the demise of the cichlids was the perch being introduced because they became a predator and competed for food with the, the cichlids. What were, were some of the other uh, reasons for their decline? You mentioned a bit about overfishing as well and the fact that loads of people actually moved to the lake in a bit of a like gold rush movement. So maybe we can go into some, some of those in a bit more detail. Yeah, so there's an isle perch um, was, was, a, was a major cause of the... Um destruction of the cichlids overfishing of the cichlids themselves so people fished the cichlids um as as a kind of bycatch um to the nile perch so trawlers were on the lake catching nile perch but they also caught a lot of cichlids for example and people would fish the cichlids to use as bait to catch nile perch from long lines um but there were also yeah environmental factors so um because so many people converged on the lake that farms sprung up around the lake as well as fish factories and other factories um, and they polluted, pollution from them went into the lake and human sewage because lots of those population boom around that time in, Af in Africa anyway, but also particularly around, around the lake. So with all these kind of nutrients going into the lake, that resulted in something called eutrophication, basically pollution of the lake and ended up in dead, in dead zones within the lake. So there's no, the deoxygenation of the waters meant that the cichlids could no longer breathe. You had mass die-offs. Of, of fish, including Nile perch. Um, so there are multiple um, uh, sources of the problem and also deforestation. So people would cut down 
trees to build houses, um, to smoke the Nile perch. And deforestation means that it's easier for um, nutrients and fertilizers and pesticides to run off the farms because the soil's not held together by the by the trees. And yeah, it accelerates the um, the kind of pollution of the lake and makes it a much more difficult environment for cichlids and other fish to to survive in. Yeah, and it's almost as if each each factor acts as a catalyst and speeds up that that cycle of decline. Yeah, it's a vicious vicious spiral, really. You know, some of this, um, the conflict between people living a, um, having a good quality of life and whilst also maintaining the environment and the biodiversity, not in the lake, but also kind of in the surrounding area. You write some really kind of stark lines. One of the ones which jumped out at me was for, um, you wrote, to make this water safe to drink, it has to be boiled, but to boil it, trees must be felled for, for charcoal. And it's such a kind of simple way to put it, but it really does draw out the there is no choice for the people living around the lake, right? They yeah. they they need to um, exploit the, the resources that are in front of them. Yeah, and if you drink the water, you're going to get the lake water, which some people do because they have can't afford charcoal. You get sick, and there's hardly any healthcare on the island, so getting sick is dangerous. And you mentioned the eutrophication. Which is one of the factors that leads to the environmental decline of the lake. But another really interesting aspect that I was reading about was the fact how it was linked to to health as well. I and mean, in the health of the community, there was a knock on with cases of bilharzia. So maybe you can explain what what bilharzia is firstly, and then how it was linked to all the way back to kind of overfishing. Yeah, bilharzia is a, a snail born disease and um, born by snails in the lake, um, who in it, it can affect humans who bathe in the lake or drink from the lake, and they catch it from um, snails which are swimming around in the lake. Um, and it's a debilitating disease which can end up killing you. It doesn't normally, if you can catch it early, you can, it's treatable. Um, but most people don't catch it very early there. As I say, there's very few um, health centres in the, in the area, not much knowledge about um, diseases, um, and it's expensive for, for the local people. So it's a very poor part of... East Africa, it's expensive for them to buy um, the, the relevant medicines. But bilharzia used to be kept in check by the cichlids because there were types of cichlids that ate these snails, mollusk eaters, several types. And uh, that would keep the um, number of vectors of the disease in check. But as these cichlids went extinct, the number of snails increased. And so there's more bilharzia in the lake and more people um, caught bilharzia around the lake. So bilharzia rates in Tanzania have gone down and life expectancy all over Tanzania has uh, gone up. But um, around the lake, they're still very high. And I think they're still, they're actually increasing as, you know, with population growth and, and the number of snails in the lake. There's now nothing left to uh, keep the um, snails in check, the snails which carry, which carry the disease. And one of our neighbours actually, who'd, who'd been a, a fisherman out there, he was only about 45 or 50, he died of the uh, effects of bilharzia um, while we were out there. Um, and I described um, the, the funeral, which was amazing in some ways, uplifting experience, um, despite the sad circumstances of the way the community rallied around to support his widow and his family. Yeah, so he died a bit while while we were out there, and and people don't really, a lot of people don't really trust what they call modern medicine out there. So they will go to if you get a, if you get some unexplained disease, um, you would usually blame it on a curse by someone else. He he once I think stole a net off his fishing partner and when he got sick 
the sickness was attributed to his fishing partner taking out a curse on him. So the only way to get cured of a curse is to go to a witch doctor to get a cure who finds out who sent the, the curse and who and how, uh, how, how they've done it. And then they find some kind of uh, antidote to this curse. So he would have been going to witch doctors for a while before um, he finally realised that this wasn't working and went to hospital. Uh, but by then it was too late and the hospital, I, w- I went to visit him in hospital actually and he was, he was just a bag of, of bones. It was very shortly before he died and the hospital couldn't treat him. So so we've touched on the, the fish in decline. There's environmental impact through eutrophication. There's health impact through the hearts here. Maybe we can have a quick um, discussion about the economic impacts because as you said, it was a bit of boom and bust. There was a boom and then a bu- and then kind of now uh, it's starting to, to bust. So maybe you can explain a bit about that and the impacts it had on the community. Yes, yeah, so there was a major boom. Um, people made a lot of money. The, the Nile perch was exported to Asia, Europe, uh, the Middle East. It was a very popular export fish and um, air, airports were built around the lake to uh, uh, export it from. Fish factories were built with um, support from the World Bank and other development um, organisations to process the fish before um, export. And, yeah, a lot of money was made. On Ukerewe Island, schools were built by rich fishermen who'd done well and wanted to give a bit back to the um, community. And those schools are still there. So there has been a long-standing benefit of it. But now, with with the overfishing of the perch, you can't catch big perch anymore. There's hardly any left. Um, so the, the, the ones that are caught are below what is now the legal minimum uh, catch size they get exported to places like Burundi and Congo rather than to Israel and Japan um, so they're much there's much less value in them and there's there's fewer Nile perch overall um, abs- you know the absolute numbers are, are down as well as the size of the ones that you catch so yeah now that boom has turned into a massive bust so before it was, there was it was generating a lot of export revenues the lake and now it's that's absolutely plummeted and it's lost billions of dollars in export revenues since the since the bust began and local people are really suffering. So um, fishermen who on, on, in the old days would earn, say, £20 a night equivalent an hour, you know, lucky if they get one or two pounds a night. Um, their catch sizes are much smaller and the market for, for them is much smaller. And you can see on Ukerewa Island, there were, there's, there's hardly any buildings of more than one storey on the whole island, but there are a couple where they've got those rods coming out of the roof, um, which were obviously there because someone had planned to put a second floor there, second story there, and then they never did it because the boom, the, the boom turned to bust and they ran out of money. And now, yeah, and there's, so there's a big population, a booming population still. People still have lots of kids, um, but there's a hell of a lot less money to uh, feed them with and to look after their healthcare with. So it's, a lot of people are trying to leave the island, islands. Um, this applies all around Lake Victoria, but by the way, not just on Ukerewe and not just on the islands. So Mwanza, which is the main Tanzanian city on the mainland, um, there are fish processing factories there that have closed down or they're running at half capacity. So everyone is affected by this bust. And it's now it now looks much more like a kind of depression uh, zone than it than it did than it would have done during the boom when it when everything was going well. I think I say in the boom, even prostitutes are getting off a jumping ship. So there lots of uh, lots of the fishermen go to the islands from the mainland, leaving their wives behind. There are a lot of sex workers come to the island to service them. But even they're um, jumping ship now because they haven't got any business anymore because the fishermen don't have any money. And 
if the fishermen don't have money, the markets don't get any money from fishermen buying stuff. The net menders, the boat uh, repairers, the boat builders, all these people don't have any income anymore because there are much fewer fish. As Mark explains, the ecological crisis in Lake Victoria has contributed to a serious deterioration in the quality of life for people living by the lake. Mismanagement, first from the colonisers and now from the local authorities, has placed the lake and its inhabitants in an extremely challenging position. Next, Mark gives us a first-hand account of a Kokoro fishing trip he went on, and he tells us a bit more about the community he lived in. And then finally, we discuss what can be done to reverse the current trends. My neighbour Hassani was an, is an uh, illegal fisherman. He, he practices this form of fishing called kokoro fishing, which is beach saining in English, where you drape a huge net out in the water. It can be like a kilometre out. And two teams of men, it's always men, uh, nearly always men, pull in the sides of the net via ropes um, from the beach. And as they pull the net in, it catches lots of fish. Um, they get stuck, they get entangled in the net, and at the end they get sort of hauled in. And as the uh, net comes closer to the to the uh, to the shore, and it's been banned in Lake Victoria for a long time because um, it it as it scrapes the bed of the shore, it get it catches lots of breeding uh, Nile perch. Nile perch breed breed in the shallows, so this type of fishing catches baby Nile perch and their mothers during the breeding season. So it has a debilitating effect on uh, Nile perch. Uh, numbers so he does that and um, because it's illegal he goes out at night because there are patrols sometimes in the daytime police patrols either on land or in water um, and it's he would get caught and his he, he has a boat like a big canoe not yeah, quite a big canoe um, and his net would get confiscated and he would risk being put in prison and then his family would have no income at all because he's the only earner and he's got six kids um, around all his but they will live with him some of them are relatives kids anyway so we went out so he goes out at night because it's safer so he took me out and we paddled out um across this bay out onto a, a kind of remote beach in the dark with um there was four other people on our boat and then a, a group of friends of his joined us to do the fishing he wouldn't let me um either paddle or fish because he thought it would mess my hands up um he must have thought i was some pathetic writer who, uh, who, who whose hands had never really seen a hard day's work and his his hands are you know, crisscrossed with kind of white lines and completely gnarled from pulling in ropes it takes hour it takes about an hour to pull in each rope each net um sort of with six six or eight men four on either side um pulling it in it's really arduous really hard really boring work um i asked him if he liked his job and he just says he's muslim he says god is great it's work um he needs, he's got a family to support. Um, he doesn't complain about it, in other words. Um, whereas I, if it was me, I, I certainly would. Um, and yeah, so we went out at night. Um, he put a few, laid a few nets in the lake. He would have stayed out. He and his colleagues would have stayed out all night doing this. But there was, a storm was brewing um, and he, they were worried about getting caught out on the lake. 5,000 people die on the lake every year, usually because, mostly because of bad weather huge lake has its own generates its own weather system because it's so so large so we had to come in at about three or four in the morning um after the trip i I'd, I'd sat there watching and amazed by the kind of hardship these guys went through 
and at the end of the night they only had a couple of small buckets of um, cichlids, mostly cichlids, which they he, he's right at the bottom of the food chain on the of the fishing food chain. He catches cichlids to sell to Nile perch fishermen, um, and they use it as bait. So he's you know one of the poorest of the poor, but even he isn't right at the bottom because he owns a boat, so he um, gets half the takings every night, um, and the rest is shared among his three or four man crew. So they're they're even lower down economically. Um, than he is, that he's seen as someone with a bit of status because he's got a boat. So yeah, it was an amazing experience um, for me and it's just a routine for them and they go out every night for eight hours a night risking getting caught by patrols uh, because sometimes the patrols do go out at night um, and just incredibly tiring. I mean, that that definitely comes through in the book as well, the determination and perseverance of, of these guys who go out to to kind of support their their families. And we've, we've spent... I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll go on to chat in a bit about what's being done to address some of the problems, but we've spent quite a bit of the time chatting about a lot of the bad things <laughs> that, that are kind of starting to, to happen on a Okoroe. But also your book is really great at highlighting the, you know, the community and the, the togetherness that they all feel on, on the island. So maybe you can, we can talk a bit about that as well. Yeah, so it's certainly not all bad. I mean, I was dre- kind of dreading it in a way when I went out there. I, I, I was excited, but thinking oh, it's going to be lonely, it's going to be difficult, I'm going to be uh, like a museum piece as the only white guy on the island and my wife's the only white woman. Um, but we had an amazing time and we've, made, we've got friends there who we're still friends with, and this was a few years ago that we lived there. Um, we've been out there um, most years since um, to the island. Um, yeah, people are incredibly warm and nice and um, welcoming, uh, interested. Um, and there are, yeah, I mean, there are, there has been some kind of social breakdown because of the economic crisis. So communities probably aren't as close as they were. But as I say, when this guy died, um, our neighbour of Bill Hart's here, his funeral went on for about three weeks and people were staying outside the, um, his house. His, his widow's house on the on the grass and warm enough to sleep outside mostly um dozens of them and they would bring whatever they could to um provide for the funeral this long funeral um they didn't have any money the, the widow didn't have any money to cook for them and stuff so people would bring a few potatoes or a bit of fish if they had any or some rice um some people would bring the really poor people would bring just a few sticks which could be used as firewood um, but everyone would bring something and just um, the fact of them being there all the, for all this time while she's going through her husband just having died was, a, I think, an incredible support to her. Um, they weren't always talking to her. She was quite often inside receiving new visitors um, while everybody else was outside chatting and drinking tea and um, eating rice occasionally. Um, or actually more often um, ugali, actually, which is this mealy meal thing that is the staple dish in Tanzania. But some people did bring rice as well which is more expensive um and yeah it's just an incredible display of solidarity with this very humble poor family um you know when i die i'm be lucky to get 20 people at my funeral he had hundreds um he had probably i think i calculated over the whole period there's two or three hundred people came along and spent at least a day there often several days um showing solidarity with that family family and with each other um, and also another another pretty amazing thing is that we lived in a, a neighbourhood that's mostly Muslim. 
Um, but there are also Christians, quite a lot of Christians on the island and across Tanzania. And there's virtually no, you couldn't really tell the difference between Christians and Muslims. They're completely, in, you know, they get on completely. You, there's just no, yeah, for a long time, I didn't know who was Christian and who was Muslim. And at this guy's funeral, he was Muslim. Um, just before he got buried, a Christian neighbour delivered a sermon um, to to everybody, to, to the mostly Muslim guests. So that's how close the religions are. There, there are, there are a couple of mosques a few mosques on the island and a lot of churches. But yeah, they're pretty indistinguishable as religions. It's a very good example of cohabitation of, of the different religions. There are also a few people who have traditional beliefs um, apparently in the centre of the island. And yeah, people are great. I mean, this, this friend of mine, Hassani, the fisherman, who's got a boat, he helps out other families in the neighbourhood when they're in trouble. He's hardly got any money and he has um, usually, as I say, around six kids to look after in his household with his wife. Um, and but when there are neighbours who are struggling and he's got more money than them, he'll help them with some money or give them some fish that they can either eat or sell. Um, you know, it's it's, it's remarkable. And, and his he's got I think four kids of his own with his wife, and there are usually at least two others who were either um, when in one case it was his brother's son, his brother had died, so he took him in. Um, his wife's brother had also died, so they took um, a couple of her kids in, and it kind of rotates. But there's always he's always got six or seven kids in the household, not all of them his own, who he looks after. And his household's not untypical. There's still a lot of uh, strong community spirit there. Everybody knows each other. People will come round in the morning just to greet me, and apparently that's just to find out if you've survived the night. Um, they go knock on your door. Yeah, they don't say that, but that's what they're doing it for, really, uh, traditionally. Um, but yeah, it's, it's awesome. We go there, and loads of people know us and greet us and come up to us and chat to us. And I know a lot more people there than I do in the town I was born in in England for example yeah I mean if someone came knocking on your door in, in London <laughs> you'd call the well, police yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah that's that's an incredible kind of picture and it's really striking despite all of the challenges that they face but that is you know remains I mean you saw what Brexit did in the UK for example yeah. how it divided but they you know despite all the hardship and divisions they still kind of maintain a bit that community um spirit yeah maybe now we can talk about we're at a stage now where you've mentioned there's social decline environmental decline people are leaving the island the kind of health infrastructure there is it's pretty much non- non-existent what is being done at the moment to address some of the environmental and social challenges around the lake? Most of what's being done to address the environmental challenges is banning fishing, like mm-hmm. Hassani's type of fishing, um, which has a devastating effect on those people because there's no other income. So uh, I think, yeah, trawlers were banned a long time ago um, and they that ban has been effective. Um, this beach sailing is, is banned. Um, there are legal minimum catch sizes, although those keep getting uh, reduced because of pressure from the fish processing factories on the government. So they kind of uh, pressure them to reduce the minimum ca- the minimum catch size. Um, so yeah, it's mostly sticks rather than carrots. There are some NGOs around the lake trying to help out, but nothing nothing massive and nothing big enough to solve the problems of twenty five million million people. And part of the problem is that there's three countries around the lake, Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. So they all have to agree to make um, a big impact on the whole lake. And they don't always get on that well with each other, uh, depending on who's in, in power. Um, and Oh, in Kenya, 
more than in Tanzania, actually, the fish farming is, is kind of taking off. So that relieves some of the pressure on the lake if people um, have fish farms on the mainland um, instead of instead of fishing in the lake. Um, that's mostly for tilapia, which is a type of, of cichlid, which is whose numbers are really plummeting in the lake. Um, and that's a popular fish for eating around Africa and it gets sold to the tourist resorts on the beaches of Kenya and stuff. Um, it's not a great replacement for Nile perch, though, because it's not yet tilapia in most countries, so not many not that many countries need to import it. And I think China produces it uh, more cheaply. Um, so a lot of the tilapia that gets um, exported to other countries is from China rather than Kenya. Yeah, so I wouldn't say there's that much being done that, is, that isn't... That, oh, there are beach management units have been set up around the lake um, and on the islands. They're not very effective, though. They can't try and limit, or they're supposed to limit the number of people who can fish and by giving people licences. But again, there's a lot of corruption involved um, and people just buy off the beach management units to uh, to acquire a, a license or to fish, fish illegally, carry on doing um, this beach saining. The fact is that there's a, an environment that is degrading and there are so many people who are reliant on that environment. And if you, as you said, there's a lot of sticks which just ban people from doing it, which then takes away their jobs and livelihoods. And... In towards the end of the book, you wrote that, that one of the um, kind of fishermen were commenting to you that the said the politicians tell us we shouldn't fish like this, but there are no companies to work for and no government jobs, which again is just it's so black and white, and there is no alternative. So 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 what other option do do people have? Yeah, you mentioned the beach management units don't really work, but the industry around there is all still fully focused on the lake or well or leather for example you know there are tanneries and things like that um yeah mostly on the lake yeah i mean it, tourism would be one way of helping these places out um it's a beautiful lake there's loads of beautiful islands on it um you can't swim in it unfortunately because of bill hearts here but also because of um crocodiles and hippos which is a pretty dangerous but it's near the serengeti the big uh, game reserves a couple of hours down the road from that um what fish you can get from the lake is delicious to eat so i mean it, yeah there's tourism potential around the lake but it has, it's totally undeveloped um in all bits of the lake in fact in entebbe in, in uganda um is a bit more tourist focused than certainly than kisumu which is the main city in kenya and mwanza in in, in tanzania um yeah so there's no real as as hassani said there's no real alternative he said he something like he could pull a cart around the town um, every day and make about a pound, which would be enough to keep him, um, but not his five or six kids. There's, there really aren't any other jobs unless you, you know, there's hawking and stuff, but then there's fierce competition, hawking in the markets. Um, so none of the fishermen you meet want their kids to become fishermen because they realise that on the sharp decline in the fishing industry there, and they, they hope that they will leave the island to go and seek their fortune in the big cities like Dar es Salaam. Based on your time there, the two years you spent, you mentioned that tourism is a potential way out. Are there any other ways out of this you know, difficult situation that, that, uh, that people find themselves in? As I say in the epilogue of the book, in the old days, before the colonisers tried to turn the lake into an industry, fishing was kind of cooperative. Um, it was very light. It didn't really, it didn't make any difference to the numbers of fish in the lake because it was done in particular seasons at particular times of year 
um, from certain beaches at different times of year um, and only certain people are allowed to do it. Um, so in the old days, it was a very sustainable fishery. It's only in the last century now that it's become an unsustainable fishery. And people go into the lake and all these environments, you know, um, um, reserves and things, with these ideas to impose on the local people that you know, we think you should do this. But nobody really asks people like Hassani what he thinks should be done. He has views on, on what's happening in the lake and um, what can be done. Um, but nobody asks him that. They, they come out, they, governments, the, the national governments do this, but also the aid agencies from, from overseas do this. They impose their own ideas on the lake without consulting local people. And Eleanor Ostrom, who I mentioned in the book, an economist at Indiana University, showed that, you know, it doesn't always have to be like, it doesn't have to be that common properties like the lake, the tragedy of the commons, isn't inevitable. And that some communities have around the world have organised themselves voluntarily to manage fisheries and forests and things sustainably without even government involvement. So they've shared, the members of these um, voluntary groups have kind of shared in the sacrifices um, needed to preserve the resource. Um, and they've shared in the resulting long-term uh, rewards. So, you know, users of the resource decide how it should be used or help decide how it should be used and who can use it, um, when it can be used, how it can be used. And that's a way to make the, the fishery sustainable, again, by having some local buy-in and input. Because at the moment, these things are imposed on them by distant government officials in distant capitals. Um, and therefore, there's no trust, there's no, and there's no reason for them to comply with it, which is why people carry on doing these illegal forms of fishing. Governments don't care about them, so why should they care about governments? All, all the governments are doing is trying to destroy their livelihoods, is what they see. They're not asking them how they could, you know, what they need and how they could do an alternative uh, type of fishing or an alternative job. So, yeah, I think rather than me saying what should be done, what I think should be done is that local people should be asked much more um, around the lake, the fishermen themselves and their wives and the people who, the other people, men and women who depend on the, on the lake. They know much more about it and they've got, well, they haven't, but previous generations have experience of managing Lake Victoria sustainably, which is an experience that has been lost now. So, I mean, that's that's my kind of my main political message from the book. Let, let's now go to our kind of final few questions. It's been a really, it's been a really great chat so far. And, and these are just kind of quick, quick ones. But for people listening to this, this podcast, if they want to do something maybe to support the fishermen or to, you know, is there anything they can buy um, like a product from the, from the lake or go on holiday there maybe? Yeah, that, would be it, yeah. suggest? that would be it. Go on holiday there, go and see it. It's a beautiful place. It's worth it. The people are great. The food's great. The weather's great. Um, and it's fascinating. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting culture, not just on the Tanzanian side of the lake and the islands, but Kisumu is a really nice city in Kenya, friendly as well. Um, Entebbe in Uganda is pretty nice. Great bird life if you want. If you're into birds, um, quite a lot of wildlife. You can see hippos and crocodiles in Lake Victoria. Serengeti is nearby. Yeah, go there would be the only thing really, and help the tourism industry. Um, and was it was there, so you lived on Ukarewe. Were are there any particular island, one island that you would recommend in in the lake? I'd probably recommend Ukarewe. It's got a few guest houses. It's great, yeah. and, it's, and it's quite. It's the biggest island in the lake. Um, there are more tour. There's one that's a bit more tourist oriented, which is called Rubondo, which has a lodge on it. I think I haven't been there. Okay. Um, that's supposed to be nice. And then in Kenya, Mfangano, which is even more remote than uh, Ukerewe, is stunningly beautiful. Uh, sort of okay. hilly and mountainous. Great. Um, 
And I guess we, we've kind of touched on this, but is there any company that's really, really doing some something good in, when it comes to the fishing and sustainable fishing in the lake? Well, interestingly, um, because of this book, an old school friend of mine got back in touch with me. Um, he'd read the book and I hadn't seen him since I, or heard from him since I was 13. And it, he emailed me out of the blue, not knowing that it was me. And yeah. uh, I said, are you, his name's Mark uh, Haviland, and I said, are you from Seven Oaks at the end of it? Because I was really good friends with someone called Mark Haviland in, uh, uh, when I was at school. And it was him. And he's got this project on Mfangano Island in Kenya, a development project um, through his organization called Shift, Shift 17, which is trying to tackle these very issues, asking loads of local people how they think the fishing crisis can be resolved on this island. So they're doing great stuff. Shift 17, just amazing out of the blue coincidence on lake on lake on lake malawi um there's a, a good example of an, an ngo which is doing stuff in this area called uh, ripple africa whose work is you know people in in lake victoria could learn from that in fact i put mark in touch with them to uh, get some of their get some lessons learned because ship 17 is a new venture and uh, ripple africa is a lot older and has had some great success in in lake malawi which also has cichlids and also has overfishing but doesn't have nile perch decimating the the local population yeah that kind of sharing of success stories is, is so important isn't it mm. um, yeah okay so that's there's two organizations for people to to look up and then finally yeah people wanted to learn more about the area obviously they should read your book maybe uh, a fish that's the first first and foremost but is is there any other you know any other good resources yeah there's a great book by a guy called tish goldschmidt called darwin's dream pond which describes the and biodiversity of the lake and what's happened to it um it's really well written um he once grew he was on a boat once on lake Victoria, and he was so bored of finding new cichlids catching new cichlid species that he dropped one he dropped the black and purple one back into the lake um because he couldn't be bothered to record it and he's never seen that type of species again there's so many different types of cichlids back in the 80s that's a great book darwin's dream pond and then much more depressingly there's a film called darwin's nightmare which was released about 10, 15 years ago, which is about um, how the lake has, um, how the fishing crash has affected uh, local communities. Depressing film, but I think it got a bit, of, a bit of traction back in the day. Okay, so yeah, lots lots of people to, to dig into if they want to understand a bit more about the fish in Lake Victoria, but but the Savior fish is there and waiting. Um, so I would definitely urge people to to read it. It's a really, really great account of, of everything we've discussed about and a lot more. But yeah, Mark, thank you very much for, for coming on the, on the podcast. It's been really great to chat. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this episode of Back to the Source. Thanks very much for listening. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or guest recommendations, you can email me at backtothesourcepod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. This episode was produced by me, Sam Stewart, with the soundtrack composed by Henry Middleditch and podcast artwork done by Storm at Hill. Thanks a lot and see you next time.